You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Today, as uh, we had mentioned earlier, is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of what the church has historically called Holy Week. And that's where we remember the passion. The passion really means the suffering of Christ. And so today is Palm Sunday. It marks Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it's totally appropriate to do so because it is, in fact, the highest point in all of human history. But this year, we're going to focus this time through what Jesus often referred to as the hour. The hour. The hour is the time written about Christ's suffering. And it's been predicted thousands of years ago by prophets of old who have written about Christ's suffering before he actually came. And it's foretold by the ancient prophets, and it's documented for all time in the Old Testament. And most importantly, it's given for our benefit and ultimately for our salvation. So while the passion of Christ is traditionally the time when he was arrested and was given over to the priests as well as to the Roman guards in the hands of sinners, as scripture says, we're going to see that the beginning of his suffering started when he was entering a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is Hebrew for oil press. And we'll see why as we go through this amazing revelation of God's word to us. So as we read God's word, would you stand with me as we hear it together? Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 32. And they, Jesus and the disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word. You may be seated.
Cell phones and movie theaters. What do they have to do with the Garden of Gethsemane? Not much. Not much, really, but except there's this one observation I want to share with you guys. It's something that I think we could relate to. This one writer says that movie theaters serve as culture's last remaining sanctuary where cell phones are not used. And as such, movie theaters provide a much-needed escape over the overconnected, overconnectivity of daily tasks and responsibilities. Indeed, the overuse of muscle memory to swipe and see if you got a text or check on a post. In a movie theater, you get to escape all of that as you immerse yourself in the story being told on the big screen. But in response to that observation, Trevin Wax, he offers another space in which we're able to take actual refuge. A place we call church. This is what he says, quote, The transcendence of a Christian worship service, it's not an escape from the real world, but the entry into a more real world. It's here that we brush up against heavenly realities. It's here where we're confronted with time-tested truth. As we hear the word of God preached, and as we approach the Lord's table, we're ushered toward a thin space where we encounter the one who summons us to worship and promises us his presence. That thin space where we encounter the one who summons us to worship, as Trevin Wax says, it's contained in this passage. It's contained here, describing the utter agony of Christ in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And what we saw in Jesus' prayer in John 17 last week, and what we see in his anguish here in the garden, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is leading us into sacred space. He's leading us to holy ground where the work of salvation is taking place in preparation for Christ's suffering in the cross. And it's here that we're going to see the most amazing and intimate glimpse of Jesus praying to his Abba, Father, where he's agonizing and doing what only he can for our sake. For our sake. So Mark, he depicts this only in a matter of 11 verses. It's the brilliance of the Holy Spirit gifting us this revelation, and it's sufficient for us to see what love this is, what love this is, and also what salvation it is for those whom the Holy Spirit is saying in this thin space. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us. He is calling us to Christ. So with that, would you pray with me? Father, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Give us faith to hear and to believe what your spirit is saying to our hearts in this moment through your living word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage this morning, it's one act. We've read it. But it's one act that's depicted in two scenes. Now, there's a duality and a contrast in these two scenes that Mark highlights for us. And he's doing it to draw out one reality. 
And so we'll discover that reality as we go through what is the most pivotal moment in all of history leading up to the cross. Now, before Jesus and the disciples entered into Gethsemane, they had just finished celebrating Passover. And Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper, its communion, and it was an inauguration of the new covenant, the covenant that was going to be fulfilled by Christ on the cross. And this is where we pick up the story before they enter into the garden, in verse 26. This is the first point of contrast. It's the well-meaning, but it's ultimately the empty courage spoken by Peter and the disciples. Verse 26, just ahead of our passage in Mark, 12, Mark 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now note the bravado in Peter's response. Verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, it's important to point out the loyalty of the disciples. It's very understandable. It's noble. But it's sourced from a limited viewpoint. It's sourced from a limited viewpoint. From their viewpoint and our earthly vantage point, the disciples are looking to and they're looking for an earthly, an outward, uh, a visible kingdom. And for the most part, the disciples saw the enemy as Rome, aided by the corrupt Jewish leaders. And as we just read, they're adamant that Jesus will never be taken captive. Now, this contrast is not just in terms of a current day deliverance for them from the oppression of Rome, Listen, church, it's deeper, and it's much more pervasive. You see, the oppression of a greater enemy, Satan, and the power and the effects of Adam's sin, that is, the destruction and death that happened in the first garden, the Garden of Eden, they're all brought to a head in Christ, who is the second Adam. Now, in the first garden, right after the sin of Adam and Eve, God had promised deliverance through the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. We know that as the first gospel. And by contrast, though, we're going to see, we, we, we see here in this garden, Gethsemane, that that promise being fulfilled by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And here is how it is accomplished. As Jesus and the disciples, they enter into the garden of Gethsemane, Mark paints a picture of increasing isolation for Jesus. Now, first upon entering Gethsemane, Jesus tells the disciples, sit here while I pray. So there's eight of them that he tells them to sit here and pray. And in verse 33, he invites only three of his disciples to come with him further, Peter, James, and John. Now, it's here that Mark starts to describe for us the true humanity of Jesus. The true humanity of Jesus. It's here that we see Jesus begin his his passion, his suffering. Now this passage 
passage here, it gives flesh to the doctrine of Jesus being the propitiation for our sins. In other words, it was Jesus and Jesus alone that could satisfy the wrath of God. It's Jesus and Jesus alone able to do that because Jesus alone is qualified to do so. And it's here that we see Jesus. He's not only walking in obedience, but in doing so, he's experiencing the impending horror. The impending horror that he's about to face in drinking the cup of his father's wrath for our sin. Look at verse 33 with me. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. The intensity and the depth of emotion and stress that Mark describes here It's not for dramatic effect. It's intentional because it's true. It happened. Think about this. This is the creator of the world. God the Son, also truly human. And he's experiencing the inevitability of not just the humiliation that he's going to receive from his very own people upon his arrest. And not just the torture that he's going to receive from the Roman guards not just the denial of his closest friend, but as I just said, the inevitable wrath and the separation from his father. What Jesus expresses is his entire being suffering, that he's overwhelmed to the point of death. Luke, the physician in his gospel, he speaks about this same scene. And he describes a phenomenon known as hematohydrosis, hematohydrosis. And this is the the phenomenon, the disease that's uh, mentioned by the National Institute of Health, the Genetic and Rare Disease Center. It says specifically, hematohydrosis is capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands and then they rupture, causing them to exude blood, occurring under extreme conditions of physical and emotional stress. So great was the pressure and stress that Jesus was literally sweating drops of blood. And what does he do? After he instructs the three disciples to remain here and watch, he goes further in isolating himself, withdrawing from those closest to him and it's here that we see what was in the heart of Jesus in this very moment verse 35 and going a little farther he fell to the ground and he prayed that if it were possible the hour might pass from him now many commentators they're familiar with the Jewish custom of prayer they point out that Mark wants us to know that the emotion Jesus felt as as he was going through this suffering, it drove him to fall to the ground, which was the most unusual way to pray. We understand that now that we read it, but certainly he was overcome and it makes perfect sense. 
Because what we read next is something so extraordinary that it requires us to pause. To pause and see the significance of it. In this next verse, church, we're being ushered into that thin space where the eternal is entering in. What we're going to see in this next verse is the intimacy of the Son in his truly human will, expressing it in full to his Father. Right now, he's seeking refuge in his Father. There's a purity in him communing with his Father, where there's this open desire of Christ laid out in his request. There's also dependence and trust that Jesus is honoring the Father with in this prayer. This is a prayer where the consequences determine literally the fate of all creation and our very existence. Verse 36, And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Jesus rightly acknowledges that God the Father as his Father. And many of us know that Abba, the term that he uses, an Aramaic term. And I like what one commentator says. He says, it's intended to show an intimacy, an affection, and a trust that's exclusive to a father and a child. And he rightly acknowledges that my father can do anything. Nothing is impossible with God. And here is the ask. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. Now at this point, you might be thinking, in asking this, is Jesus not obeying the will of the Father? I thought Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my Father and to accomplish the work he has sent me to do. Earlier in Mark, Jesus himself said, for even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to, uh, excuse me, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His last meal was celebrated to show that he would give his body and his blood in the new covenant. So why is he now asking that the cup the judgment of God upon sin be removed from him. Well, it's helpful to know that the very nature of Jesus and the study of it, the doctrine of Christ, Christology, is something we need to understand here. The Bible is very clear about the doctrine of Christ. And the doctrine of Christ has been preserved along with many other biblical doctrines, obviously through the word of God, but also through the church. The church has done what it's been called to do to entrust the gospel to every generation. And the church is called the church of the living God because it is also the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We, the church, uphold the truth of God's word. And here's the truth. Jesus Christ is God of very God. He is of the same essence and being as God the Father 
and God the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God. Uniquely, Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. He is two natures in one person. And as truly God, he has a divine will. And that divine will is perfect. And it's the very same will as God the Father and God the Spirit. It's one divine will. It's never compromised. It's never separated. It's never divided. And as a perfect human, Jesus has a human will. And as church history notes, he is like us in all respects apart from sin. Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, divine will, and human will. In this human will, Jesus is pressing in to the Lord. He's pressing into the Father, and he's asking if there is any other way for salvation. It's a natural thing to want to preserve your life. We know this. Yet in Christ, in his will, in his human will, as the perfect Israel, as the perfect disciple, and as the perfect Adam, he conforms his human will to the perfect will of the Father. He had to go through this prayer, church. He had to pray this prayer as one who has a fully human will to show himself perfect. And the implications of that we're going to see as we continue on in this passage. It means everything. And so Jesus, in praying this prayer three times, he reveals the depth of anguish he is suffering. And that's consistent with how he began his time in the garden. And each time he prays, he receives the perfect answer. And in that perfect answer, he humbles himself in complete obedience. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. The next following verses, 37 through 40, Mark highlights, as I mentioned earlier, the contrast between the disciples and their inability, their ineffectiveness. And he contrasts that with the work that Christ is doing. Verse 37 through 41. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, Are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Mark's driving the point home, right here. The disciples, while sleeping and taking their rest, they illustrate that we, at our best, are incapable of saving ourselves. In marking out this contrast, Christ is left alone. Praying as the perfect disciple, and on behalf of his people, Christ alone is our mediator. 
genuinely willing to take the cup of Christ's wrath. Christ alone, excuse me, God's wrath. Christ alone is our propitiation. He's the only one who could satisfy God's righteous and just punishment against sin. You remember, as mentioned earlier again, in the first garden, Adam rejected God's blessings. He rejected God's blessings and he sinned and we all suffered. Romans 5.12 reminds us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. However, here's the good news. However, in this garden, the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is willing, again, willing to suffer alone, to take on the curse and the judgment of our sin. And in doing so, he becomes our perfect substitute. And by praying this prayer, he had to exercise his own will to do so. Hebrews says it perfectly. Hebrews two seventeen. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect apart from sin to make propitiation for the sins of the people. After Jesus came back the third time, disciples, as we know, they're still sleeping. And Jesus says in the second half of that verse 41, it is enough. The hour has come. It is enough. The Greek word in the context here, it seems to tell us that Jesus was saying, enough sleeping. The time has come. My betrayal is imminent. But some have said that this phrase also means the bill is paid. All is settled. So whether he's referring to time, the hour has come, which is true, or to accounts that our account will be settled, one commentator says, what had been settled in prayer would be carried out in life and in death. It is enough. The hour has come. It's at this very point in time where the resolve of Christ to do his Father's will is done with a true desire and perfect obedience. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And he says with a resolve unlike any other, Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Hebrews, again, accurately describes the life of Christ and the necessity of this time in Gethsemane. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. 
and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Amen? Amen. Church, Jesus Christ, human will, and its perfection was always part of the plan. It was always part of the plan. It's always been the purpose of God for our salvation. In the exercise of his human will, you and I can confidently say, in faith alone and in Christ alone, does my salvation stand. Amen? Amen. Now, as we close, I want to bring two things to us this morning. For those of us who are struggling with assurance of salvation, for those of us who are doubting God's love for us, for those of us who are experiencing the shame of our youth, for those of us who are experiencing deep anxiety and are in a dark place, or for those of us who feel that we're doing all right, that we've been living a good life so far, and that in the end, I think the good's going to outweigh the bad. Please hear these last two points. The first, which has been our focus through the sermon, is the perfect will of Jesus. And the second is the everlasting love of our Savior. In regards to the first point, Robert Stamps, in writing on the necessity of Christ's two wills, he says this, quote, If Christ did not assume a human will, how can my fallen human will be redeemed and restored? Christ overturns the curse of sin at precisely the location where it was unleashed on the cosmos by Adam, namely at the level of human will, the human volition. And he goes on to say, Christ wills salvation through a human will on behalf of our human will. Do you see the substitution there? In doing so, Christ renders perfect obedience to the Father, which is then imputed to our account by faith. By faith. And here's the implication, church. Stamps goes on to say, when my will falls yet again to sin and vice, I would be left hopeless were it not for the Christ's perfect volitional record. Christ's perfect volitional record. He's never exercised his will for anything other than complete and total obedience to the Father. My salvation rests on this certain foundation that Christ has willed perfect human obedience as my representative and my substitute. From our call to worship this morning, it was also quoted in Hebrews 10, verses 9 and 10. Hear this. Behold, I, Jesus, have come to do 
your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By that will. Praise you, Lord, for your will. Now our second point. There's a significant dimension to this prayer that's at the very core of who Christ is in being the perfect substitute. And it's at the very core of his love for us. It's contained in the very nature and the character of our triune God. How so? Ronald Kernagan, he points to this beautiful reality. Happened earlier in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 12, verse 29. In answering a scribe's question as to what commandment is the most important of all, Jesus answered in Mark 12, 29, the most important is, and he says the Shema, which means here. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Now often we think, hey, this is worth everything to aspire to. It's perfection. But the commentator says this, it wasn't a goal or an ideal for us. It was the essence of life for Jesus This is the essence of life for Jesus because the Lord our God is one. Jesus, God the Son, is united in his will and his purpose to the Father and to the Spirit. And because as a perfect human being, he loved the Lord with everything that he was. And listen to this church, he loved you. He loves you. And he will continue to, to love you completely, without reservation. He conformed his perfect human will when he prayed, yet not what I will, but what you will. Amen? Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect son of man, in his living, in his suffering, Never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand.